From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello, welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show, and I'm honored that you're joining us today. If you happen to be listening to the international news last week, you probably heard another great reason to avoid saving your money in banks. Now, on past shows, we mentioned that if you invest in bank CDs, which I affectionately call certificates of depreciation, they come with two guarantees. Now, the banksters only mention one of those guarantees, so they actually give you twice as many. They mentioned that they're backed by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Federal Insurance, which in turn is backed, of course, by the ever-popular printing press at the U.S. Treasury or whichever whichever other government uh, agency that backs the uh, deposits in a particular country. And that includes Cyprus, by the way. They do also have uh, federal or, or national deposit insurance. Now, the second guarantee, which is seldom mentioned other than here on the Wealth DNA Radio Show, is that your money will be worth less than when you put it in. There was a very deliberate pause between the word worth and the word less. So worth less. I was not saying your money would be worthless. This past week, the government in Cyprus floated a proposal for a one-time tax. You know, we'll only do this to you once. We'll see. So let's do a quick calculation here. Let's say you deposit a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred thousand euro. Doesn't matter. Use a, any number. But just want to get you percentages here. And if you earn a one percent return, which is probably pretty typical, or maybe even on the high side, depending on the country and the duration, then you take away around ten percent, which is what their proposal was. But of course, you have to pay income taxes on the thousand dollars of interest. And to keep up with the inflation, you would need to have about 103000 at the end of the year in order to, uh, in essence, cover the increased cost of living in the meantime. So you're basically behind by $12,500 or 12.5%. So you are at the end of the year 12.5% behind when you deposited the funds. What a deal. Now, I guess we need to factor in the other proposal that is being floated around. That's to charge you a half a percent every time you deposit or withdraw funds. So if that goes through as well, you would be behind by about 13.5% by putting your money in the bank. Now, will those taxes and will those fees be tax deductible? Who knows? It'll depend on the country you live in and the tax laws du jour. Now, regular listeners of the Wealth DNA Radio Show certainly know that they're not; these are not, definitely not, the type of investments we suggest. As a matter of fact, I'm on record saying that it's very difficult to call a bank deposit or a loan to the bank an investment, which is a great segue to introduce our today's uh, topic today. Today, I'd like to share a topic that's likely to be somewhat uncomfortable, actually maybe even very uncomfortable or even controversial based on the wealth files you have stored in your mind. The topic, your home, is not an investment. Although if we compare your home to the bank accounts in Cyprus or other countries, the government is not able to generate sufficient revenue to cover their expenses. The money you spend on your home will probably still be better than investing it 
quote-unquote, in the bank. Now, the situations in Cyprus, Greece, Spain, Italy, Japan, and, well, why not the U.S., remind me of the phrase I coined right here on the Wealth DNA radio show just one month ago. Instead of government spending, we sure should refer to it as government overspending. Today, we won't spend much time on government overspending or what the bankers, banksters are up to. We'll be focusing on investment fundamentals and continuing our series on alternative investments. If you want a prediction for me on what will happen in Cyprus and other European countries, here it is. Regardless of what happens there in the next few weeks, we'll be back in two weeks. Same time, same place to bring you some great information to help you become wealthy. Now, as regular listeners of Wealth DNA Radio Show know, I've been doing a series on alternative investments. I shouldn't say I. We've been doing a series on alternative investments. We had some great guests. And... This is to help you prepare, yes, you and all of our listeners, for what might be the biggest event of the decade, the eventual end of the 35-year bull market in bonds. And it reminds me of the disclosure statement required of investment advisors by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. So just because there has been a principal gain, in addition to dividends paid on bonds for the last 35 years, does not need mean it will continue for another 35 years, or for that matter, even another 35 days. Now, most financial advisors only talk about three asset classes, stocks, bonds, and cash. And as we now know from the recent events in Cyprus, if you didn't expect this earlier, even cash you invest in banks or maybe even government securities can lose money when the government decides they don't have enough and they need more from you. Oh, did I say when instead of if? That intentional statement was intentional. Yes, what I mean is when I, when I said when the governments uh, need your money, not if. Now, two quotes I thought I'd share on this topic. The first is from Milton Friedman, great economist. The government's solution to a problem is usually as bad as the problem. Just ask the people in Cyprus, or Egypt, or you can fill in the country. Now, another quote I liked from Robert Half from Accounting Fame: Please try to live. Uh, people, excuse me. People try to live within their income so they can afford to pay taxes to a government that can't live within its income. Thanks, Robert. So well said. Today is March 25th, 2013. It is 9.07 in Phoenix, Arizona, 9.07 on the West Coast, which we also refer to as the Left Coast, and it's 5.07 p.m. in continental Europe. Well, a little trouble there with the uh, speech. And I should remind our listeners in Europe that our next show will be one hour later, since you'll change your clocks in just one week. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. Your local time may differ as you change your clocks. I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show, you can hear it on the archives. Just go to wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archive, and there you'll find our shows in the series on alternative investments. The ones I'll refer to most today were in April to June of 2012, the ones on direct investment in real estate. The rest of the alternative investment series started in October 2012 and continues into 2013. 
Incidentally, the link we included in our email announcement of today's show is the same link that will take you to the archive to re-listen today's show. you got to love technology. Now, we welcome your comments and guests, um, comments and questions, boy, during the show. Is it Monday morning? Yeah, it is, as a matter of fact. I'd like to make this show fairly informal and welcome your questions and even your comments if you disagree. There's no problem to disagree. It will be an uncomfortable topic. You can use the chat window below the radio player or call in and our producer will put you through. The call-in number, 917-388-4162. Let me repeat that, and it is at the top of your screen, 917-388-4162. Now, the U.S. equity markets, after a choppy week last week, are off to a roller coaster start today. They started up very quickly, just like a roller coaster, and then they headed down after that first hump, and then they're kind of up and down a little bit. Where will they end? I don't know. Will the S&P close above the 2000 and record, uh, 2007 record close of 1565? Yes, it will, but I can't tell you when. The Asian market was up, Europe was slightly lower, is slightly lower, and Brazil is basically flat today. Let's jump into a topic that will be more controversial than most we covered. You've been forewarned. Why? We all have heard or learned things in our life that conflict with what I'll share today. Your home is not an investment. Now, this happens to be fairly appropriate timing because my son and daughter-in-law are buying their first home in the next couple of weeks. So it's a good time to forewarn them. Even though I'm not discouraging them, I am encouraging them to buy a home. It is not an investment and not to be confused with the other investments we talk about on this show. Now, recall T. Harv Ecker defined these wealth files that I'm talking about. We all have them in our minds. They tell us what to do or how to react when when, uh, something comes up based on how we learned in the past or what we learned and how we were conditioned. Now, let me use some examples to better explain. If If when you were growing up, your mother reacted to a sales sign at a store by going in, seeing what's on the sale rack, and buying something, you're likely to react the same way when you see a sale sign. Now, if, on the other hand, when your mother saw that sale sign at a store, she would say to you, there they go again, putting out the clothes they raised prices on last week with a markdown this week, you're probably conditioned to shrug your shoulders and move on. Those are wealth files, things that we've learned, we've been conditioned with based on our past experience. Now, what's in your wealth files regarding the home you live in and whether you own it or rent it? Incidentally, if I had brought this topic up about eight or ten years ago, most listeners would have tuned out after just five minutes saying, this guy's out of his mind. We're all making great returns on our homes month after month. Today, I'd expect only 50 to 60% of listeners to question my sanity. But everyone's wealth files were affected by the Great Recession, which is what caused that change. Millions of people who dreamed of owning a home just 10 years ago are now questioning whether they ever want to own again. Why? Because many of them lost the entire amount they spent and thought they were investing in that home. There's even a belief 
very logical actually, that we may see a whole generation with a lower percentage of home ownership than we experienced historically. In the U.S., the number of families owning a home generally ranges from about 60 to 65 percent, and I can't tell you how that differs by country. Certain certain countries have a uh, a habit, if you will, or, or have been conditioned to own a home, and others have been less conditioned to own a home because of economic conditions. And it also differs a lot by state. California is one that tends to be fairly expensive to own, so more people rent. Now, the few times that percentages, that percentage, that 65%, went higher, we seem to experience some sort of housing or real estate crisis in the U.S. So I would not be surprised, by the way, if the kids who saw their parents lose their homes during the Great Recession have a 50 or even 40% homeownership rate. It's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to what they experienced as kids. You see, there is a recency bias in our wealth files. Those kids who lived through and will remember what happened to their parents, they don't want it to happen to them. They question whether homeownership is worthwhile. Renting has so much more flexibility. They can pack up and move easily every year and move to renting renting nicer and bigger apartments or homes as the incomes rise, as their incomes rise, of course. The recent occurrence is not the reason I tell you your home is not an investment. It has nothing to do with the Great Recession. This fact was true. 10 years ago and 20 years ago and will be 10 or 20 years from now. Although it does influence your wealth files, as I mentioned, 8 or 10 years ago, you would not you would have thought I was absolutely crazy. Today, I expect you're more likely to listen and want to understand my logic. At least, I sure hope so. Now, on past shows, I've mentioned there are four factors we use when we evaluate any investment you make. You may also recall that every time I give you a list of four factors, I add a fifth, free of charge. That fifth one is particularly relevant in today's conversation. Interestingly, when I do a live seminar on various investment strategies, ask this question, what are the four factors you use to evaluate any investment? The third one comes up very quickly. Generally, some version of the second comes up with a little prompting, and the others just aren't obvious to the attendees until I mention them. Sort of a V8 moment. Oh, of course. What are those four factors? Well, number one is liquidity. Aha, you knew that. Your ability to get at your money when you need it. Second is safety. It's often stated as the reverse, as risk. Either way, you look at it, safety or risk. But there are so many aspects to risk, we focus on safety, the lack of risk. Now, third is rate of return, and that's the factor always brought up. People think of that one, but generally not the most important until you start comparing investments of similar liquidity and safety. Fourth is tax consequences. Now, by the way, any time I've done a live seminar, people forget that one. Now, it's particularly paradoxical when I'm doing a seminar for investors using their self-directed IRAs. On one hand... Because of tax consequences, it drove them to use their money that's tax-sheltered. On the other hand, given they're planning to use their IRA, maybe they just figure tax consequences don't matter since their IRA provides tax protection. And then number five of the four factors, social benefit. Now, we should always use these five factors to evaluate any investment, although I will argue you don't need to bother with your home since it's not an investment. But to make sure you get your money's worth, let's take 
take, uh, let's say, a, a minute or two to walk through the list for listeners who remain unconvinced and still view their home as an investment. Okay, let's take liquidity. Number one, when you need cash, maybe you're unemployed for a while or your car broke down, can you easily and quickly sell your home to get the cash to handle those short-term cash needs? Well, in a healthy real estate market, you can expect your home to take about six months to sell. Those might be very stressful months, and you might turn out to be a terrible negotiator as your financial pressures rise. Stocks, bonds, commodities, even investment, real estate, and private mortgage notes are much easier to sell or use as collateral to take out a loan than is your personal home. So if you feel your home is an investment, it's clearly not liquid. Okay, how about the second factor, safety? Well, up until the Great Recession, 99% of the population would have said it was extremely safe. But after those millions of people lost everything they invested or spent on their homes, was lost. Their attitude and their response on safety has changed dramatically. Just for the record, a home and any other real estate is indeed a safe investment. It's tangible. Its market value never goes to zero. And if you've handled all the legal paperwork properly, it's very unlikely you lose it in some pyramid or Ponzi scheme as you might with some financial securities. Okay, how about factor three, rate of return? Now, this topic will require some further explanation. This is one of those controversial points you're going to say he's crazy. The bottom line, the equity in your home does not earn any rate of return. Let me say that again, and let me say it a different way. The return on the equity in your home is zero. So if I said I have this great safe investment that's not terribly liquid, but you can earn 0% return as long as you own it, would you be excited about investing in it? I didn't think so. As I said, I'll come back to this topic later, since it's very key to understanding why your home is not an investment. Okay, how about tax consequences? Well, the answer depends on the country where you live. In the United States, the government has provided tax benefit for owning a home by being able to deduct, first of all, property taxes, and secondly, the mortgage interest you pay on your home. It's not quite as much tax benefit as an investment property you own, since you're also able to take depreciation for the property, the furnishings, the renovations you do to that property. For your own home, the cost of any renovations can be added to your cost basis and thus lower your capital gains, and that's a second tax benefit to the homeowners in the U.S., at least currently. If you live in the home at least two of the five years before you sell it, no capital gains tax on the first 250 or 500000 of gain depending on your marital status. Now, all these rules are subject to change by the end of the week. There has already been discussion about eliminating the mortgage interest deduction, just like they eliminated the deduction for credit card and other consumer interest just a few years ago. As I said, tax rules are subject to change at the whim of the government. Just ask the Cypriots. As Lily Tomlin, you may remember a great um, comedian, uh, Lily Tomlin, uh, which uh, her comment, by the way, applies to most countries, 98% of the adults in this country are decent, hardworking, honest Americans. It's the other lousy 2% that get all the publicity, but then we elected them. 
Now, I might disagree with her percentage of 98% being hardworking, but she's absolutely right on the principle. All right, let's jump to the fifth uh, factor, social benefit, the one that most people don't really use when they're investing, but it is an increasing trend, which we discussed when Ann Logue was on the show recently. Both logic and empirical evidence show that homeowners care more than renters about the appearance of their property. And renters, why? Well, I guess I may explain why rather than and. Renters really aren't tied to their community as much as homeowners. So if the schools or the neighborhood degrade, they can easily move somewhere else. A homeowner, on the other hand, has a financial interest, the property value, basically, for their neighborhood to stay attractive and for the quality of schools to stay high. So homeowners also are more likely to invest in improvements. By the way, that creates jobs at retail and by hiring handymen and contractors. I can use a quick analogy to demonstrate this point if you're not convinced. When you travel and rent a car, do you ever wash it, or did you ever wash it and take it, to, and take it through a car wash? I would say it's very unlikely that you have. Whereas when you drive a car you own or even have a long-term lease, you keep it clean and take it to the car wash much more often. I suspect this will be the one topic I won't get any disagreement. Quality schools, well-kept neighborhoods, creating jobs all have social benefit. I'm sure this is part of the logic behind the property tax and mortgage interest deduction that we have in the U.S., although assuming any use of logic on the part of the government is risky at best. So I'd better not conjecture. Let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you've missed some of the prior shows, like the ones we did on investing in real estate or other ones on alternative investments, or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on www.wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, you can do one of two things, or of course both. Send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events, or in the upper left side of your screen, just under the Boomer and the Babe's picture, click the follow button. You'll be informed of each of the great shows on the Boomer and the Babe network. Now a reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you, yes you are listeners, to ask questions. Start a chat in the chat window below is usually the easiest way, or just call in 917-388-4162, and that number is at the top of the screen. And yes, I do welcome different points of view and counter-arguments. Today we're talking about your home, and specifically that it's not an investment. So I've covered the factors you would use in evaluating an investment and use them to evaluate your home, even though it's not an investment. I also mentioned that fewer young people today will be interested in owning homes than in past generations. And whether you refer to them as millennials, Generation Y, or Echo Boomers, or whatever the academics are using these days, I'm referring to the kids who lived with their parents and lost their homes during the Great Reception from 2007 until today in 2013. Now, yes, I know officially the recession ended much earlier, try to convince the people still looking for a job. But I also know many people still losing their jobs or still walking away from their homes. I'd like to address a comment I've heard several times in the media before we move further. And I don't consider the Wealth DNA Radio Show part of that mass media. 
they've said that home values will not rise to the levels they were in the past because fewer young people be interested in owning a home. Now, that statement would only be true if young people decide to live in apartment complexes versus single-family homes. So many young families want to own dogs or they want a private yard for the kids to play in. And those amenities are generally only found in single-family homes and some townhomes. So whether a family decides to buy or to rent a home, someone still has to buy and own it. So if they don't, then a landlord or investor would. When you and the listeners of this show are, uh, are, are, are part of who I'm talking to, I don't have a problem using the term investor. But in other circles, I generally call them home providers or housing providers. Somehow, we investors are the bad guys. You know, the ones who provide homes. We increase property values. We create jobs, invest in businesses, build hospitals, and other awful capitalist things like those. So whether young people decide to own or to rent, I do not think will have any measurable impact on housing prices. At most, it could cause a shift toward multifamily versus single-family properties. I'm not expecting that. The counter-argument I was expecting to hear from at least one of our listeners by now is each of us needs to live somewhere, and it's better to invest in a home than to spend money on rent. Somehow most people feel that argument implies that our home is an investment. Again, let me use an analogy that everybody can relate to. The vast majority of the people these days, especially in the U.S. and more and more in developing countries, need to own a car to get around. And it's generally more cost-effective to own that car than to lease or rent one. So does that make a car an investment? Clearly it's not. A car is a devaluing asset. You spend money on it, just like on your home. That analogy provides a good segue to discuss how I would define an investment versus other assets. Let's first look at Investopedia's, Investopedia's definition, which I like to use them as a reference for financial investment terms. Good, good uh, website, by the way. They say, and here's their definition, asset or item that's purchased with the hope that it will generate income or appreciate in the future. Okay, so that's the core definition. Now they add, in an economic sense, an investment is the purchase of goods that are not consumed today but are used in the future to create wealth. In finance, an investment is a monetary asset purchased with the idea the asset will provide income in the future or appreciate and to be sold at a higher price. So in all cases, they're talking about buying it specifically to appreciate or provide income. I'll admit their definition is good, and it's very consistent with my arguments as to why your home is not an investment. So let's start with that. Uh, by the way, we're going to have in the future a show on the problem with accounting. And we'll dig more into the balance sheet, which causes the vast majority of business people and probably all accountants to get lost in the financial forest while they're counting trees. They focus on accounting rules and structure versus the financial logic. I've been planning an article on the topic, but still looking for that round to it. It's just not around here. If we classify our car and our home using accounting methodology, both are assets. Okay, no argument there and thus would be on the left-hand side or the good side of the balance sheet, right? The assets are on the left, the liabilities are on the right. Now, the mortgage, on the other hand, or our car loan, our liabilities, and therefore would be on the right-hand side of the balance sheet, the bad side. 
When you apply for credit, such as business loans, those assets are considered positive by the banksters who run their analysis using that traditional accounting. Since they do, then I don't suggest confusing them with financial investment analysis we cover on this show. Just don't confuse them with logic. For the ma- that matter, we should add the furniture in your home, the grill on your patio, and all the excess junk you've accumulated in your garage, basement, or attic. It could also be considered assets and included on your balance sheet. Incidentally, a little, a little um, aside here. Why is it that so many people park a $25,000 vehicle on their driveway and they secure $1,000 worth of junk inside of their garage, all locked up and safe and dry? I happened to go to a neighborhood garage sale this Saturday, and that thought kept running through my mind. I did pick up some stuff that burned in our office and garage fire at very low prices. So I've got some replacement stuff at lower than I paid for them the first time. Anyway, back to our home and our car. They are assets by accounting methodology, but they're not income-generating assets. They may be necessities and more cost-effectively owned than rented or leased, but that doesn't make them income-generating assets. And that's the core part of my argument. Now, let's go to my definition. An investment has to accomplish one of three things. Either generate a regular stream of income, like interest, dividends, or rent payments from tenants. Or, secondly, provide capital growth, like stocks, investment properties, even land. Or, third, be liquid or convertible to cash in emergencies. Gold and silver might be good examples of that. You easily can convert them, and they don't lose value the way bank accounts can. Let's first evaluate your home using Investopedia's definition. An asset or item, I'm repeating here, an asset or item that's purchased with the hope that it will generate income or appreciate in the future. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly buy my home to live in it, not for generating income or appreciation. Then they add, in an economic sense, an investment is the purchase of goods that are not consumed today, but used in the future to create wealth. And this aspect verifies that we buy our home to use it today, not for future use or creating wealth. In other words, we don't buy a home and let it sit there for three or four years until we move in. Now, if my home appreciates, all the better. But I buy it to live in it today. And I do not buy it specifically with an objective of appreciation. Appreciation's kind of the frosting on the cake. Now, let's evaluate your home on my three criteria. You're clearly, clearly, your home does not provide an income stream. It does provide an alternative to spending that monthly um, rent expense, so you don't have to pay rent when you own a home, but it doesn't generate an income stream. The bonds or an investment property, would you? Even bank CDs are better on this particular criterion than your home. And I don't even consider bank CDs an investment, let alone a home. How about the second criteria, providing capital growth? This gets me back to the return on the equity in your home, which, as I said, is zero. Now, granted, it might appreciate in value. And the fact that you owned it versus being a rental property does have some benefit. But it's part of your cost-benefit analysis we refer to as rent versus buy analysis. Very few people do that analysis, and I have proof. 
See, if they did, then very few people would have bought homes in the U.S. During, during that 2004 to 2007 bubble, since the cost of renting was far lower than owning. Additionally, that equation's reversed since the Great Recession, and today in most parts of the U.S., owning a home is far cheaper than renting one. And what happens? Fewer people, because they don't do the analysis, want to own than they used to. Hopefully you see my point that very few people explicitly analyze the rent versus buy decision. But that's what applies to whether you should rent or you should buy. While we're on this topic, let me share something that you may not be aware of. There is a historical relationship between house prices and rental prices. Incidentally, the same relationship holds for commercial properties, the lease versus the uh, purchase price. Depending on where you live, home prices will be between 100 to 120 times the monthly rent. So in Phoenix, the historical relationship is housing prices are about 120 times the monthly rent prices. And that's partially due to the fact that most of the homes here are very new. Now, in the Northeast or the Midwest of the U.S., where a typical home might be 80 or 100 years old, this historic relationship might be closer to 100 or 110 times the monthly rent. Now, in those boom years, which we all know in hindsight were part of the housing bubble, housing prices far exceeded that 120 times monthly rent. So anyone buying properties with the intent of renting them out probably didn't have batteries in their calculator or didn't own a calculator. The relationship of prices also helps explain why the statement by the media that housing prices will not rise since most people want to rent is absolutely ludicrous. When more people want to rent, that drives rental prices up, which means landlords, investors, or home providers, whatever you decide to call them, will be willing to pay more for those properties, since their investment returns will be better. Now back to my three criteria. Remember the first and the second. Now the third is being liquid or convertible to the cash. Ah, and this leads me into a number of topics, and I will recommend a book that really gives you some great information on uh, this aspect. And that book is Missed Fortune, M-I-S-S-E-D, Missed Fortune by Douglas Andrew. The first half of that book explains these topics extremely well. Andrew Douglas, uh, let's try that again, Douglas Andrew, it is confusing to her first names, Um, uh, Douglas Andrew, and I have the book right in front of me, I keep reminding myself, even use an example from his own personal life that addresses your ability to convert your home into cash when you need to. Let's say you lose your job. Back to my old example, you need to have some additional cash to pay your expenses for, let's say, three or six or 12 months it might take to find a new job. Now, depending on the economy, of course, right? The lousy economy takes longer. Now, it's not coincidence that more people lose their jobs when the economy is lousy. It is therefore not a coincidence that it takes longer during those times to find a job. So let's assume it's a sluggish economy, jobs are hard to find, and it takes a long time to sell your home. Now, if that sounds like 2013, you're probably right. The exceptions are markets like Phoenix, Arizona, where we do have a sluggish economy and well-paying jobs are hard to find, but it does not take very long to sell your home since demand is high and the supply of homes is quite low. So one of the options you might consider is selling your home because you need the money, right? And using that cash to pay your expenses. But of course, you'd also have to pay a security deposit, some moving expenses, and then start paying your monthly rent payments. 
Now, another alternative you might consider is taking a mortgage on the property if you don't have one. We'll talk about that topic shortly. Or take a second mortgage, commonly referred to as a home equity loan. Okay, very logical. Now, if you're recently unemployed, the job market's lousy, your chances of getting that home equity loan are a little bit lower than winning the lottery. And heck, playing the lottery only costs two bucks, so that might be a better strategy. In the book, Missed Fortune, Douglas Andrew, I've got it right this time, highlights this point with his personal story. He had even been paying down his mortgage ahead of schedule so that there'd be more equity in the property when the property was going up in value. So when he needed a loan, which he did, he figured, I'll be able to get a larger loan. He didn't get that loan. Instead, he lost his property. Are you starting to see the logic behind my statement? Your home is not an investment. Now, let me address another topic that some of you probably have been thinking about, especially if you've read some of the good books I've recommended on prior shows, like The Millionaire Next Door, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, or The Millionaire Mind. All are great books and touch on at least one aspect of what we're talking about. If you read them carefully, you would know that most millionaires own their own home, and wealthy people invest in assets and others spend money on expenses. Both of those concepts support home ownership, since a home is an asset, renting is an expense. And it's also totally consistent with what I said earlier. Your home is an asset, it's just not an investment. Since it's not an income-generating asset. Now, when we talk about the problem with accounting in a future show, I'll cover the fact that your home and your car are, in essence, toxic assets. Assets that are not income-generating assets. Income-generating assets, we sometimes call, or I call IGAs, those are investments. From those same books, you would realize that wealthy people own homes that are above average in value. Big but here. They are not the most expensive homes. If a home were an investment, then wealthy people would buy the most expensive home they could, right? Because it's an investment, and why not invest as much as you can? Instead, they buy a comfortable home that meets their needs in a good neighborhood that's likely to appreciate in value. A neighborhood that they'll be comfortable living in for 20 or 30 years. Incidentally, from those books, you'll know the majority of wealthy people buy their homes for about $250,000, and those homes are eventually worth $1 million after 20 or 30 years. But they bought homes that met their needs, not as an investment. In my case, I preferred to buy a home for 300000 instead of a home for a million dollars and to put the remaining 700000 into investments because I knew that a home is not an investment, something most people don't. It's an asset, yes, and a necessity because i got to live somewhere, and I certainly prefer it to be comfortable and to meet my needs in a good neighbor that will enjoy living for the next 30 or 40 or 50 years. And recall, I have longevity in my family and lots of reasons I should outlive my parents, aunts, and grandparents, many of which lived well into their 90s. So the good news for you, you can count on the Wealth DNA radio show being around for your kids and even grandkids to listen to live. Now, admittedly, if my home appreciates to $1 million in 20 or 30 years, I'll be very pleased. But the $700,000 i have invested in, um, um, in investments, true investments, rather than spending on my home, 
will grow far more than threefold in that same period. Heck, just the cash flow from the 700000 provides sufficient income to pay more mortgage and living expenses. Something a $1 million home could never do, since my home, just like your home, are not investments. Now, if I did buy that $1 million home, it would probably consume two to three times as much in utility expenses, would require more furniture. I'd pay higher property taxes, larger expenses for security systems, etc. You see, having very expensive homes attracts thieves, vandals, and others who resent the homeowner and despise the homeowner's expe- uh, success. For some reason, they assume a wealthy person's success was at their expense. How dare those damn wealthy people create jobs and pay taxes? Damn them. Now, if those thieves and vandals listened to this show or read those books, they would realize they're targeting the wrong neighborhoods. And yes, you can argue that I would be even better off, or you as well, by buying a $100,000 manufactured home on a small lot and have even more money to invest. But each of us makes trade-offs as to the lifestyle we want. And if you read about the definition of passive income in the book, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, you'll run into what I affectionately refer to as the PISS principle. You know the KISS principle? Well, PISS principle. Now, T. Harvecker admittedly did not use that term. That's my term, but I think it makes it easier to remember. Passive income is investment plus savings plus simplification. You see, the smaller, less expensive home not only gives you cost savings, it also leads to simplification in your life. People that have three or four car garages or even 12 car garages accumulate a lot more stuff. That stuff costs money and provides no passive income. Well, I guess it's time to address that most controversial topic. Before we do that, let me remind the listeners that just tuned in. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier port on the ar- uh, portion on the archive. If you missed prior shows, you can find the archives on www.wealthdna.us. Today we're discussing your home and the fact that it's not an investment. So what is that controversial topic? The equity in your home earns no return. And I can combine this topic with whether or not you should have a mortgage on your home. We'll cover them all at once. We covered the mortgage in one of our shows on OPM, Other People's Money. This is a perfect time to reiterate it and combine it with the equity you have invested in your home. Let's say that you and I bought identical homes. It's the easiest way to explain it. Identical homes back in 2007, we bought them in the same neighborhood. Maybe we even lived next door to each other. We each paid $300,000 for our home, and both of us take good care of them since they're identical homes in the same neighborhood. Well taken care of them, they'll appreciate the same amount. Are you with me so far? I don't want you to get hung up on the fact that you're now living next door to me. It's really not all that bad. I don't have a barking dog, nor do I have loud parties. But if I do, I'll invite you. Now, let's say you're one of those investors who hasn't heard my turkey story and hasn't heard uh, the shows on OPM. So you felt in buying your home that the most appropriate thing to do would be buying it using cash, since you don't have to worry about the bank for closing on you. And since you have a lot of cash invested, you'll make a decent return on that cash as the house appreciates. Well, that's what many people think. 
Now, when I bought my home in the neighborhood, contrasting with your cash purchase, I put 20% down as the bank required. And a few days or a few months later, I take out a home equity loan for $60,000 or 20% of the value. Now, I should disclose that I did just that, although I took a loan out for 70000 and thus had neg- negative equity in my home. You see, I practice what I share on the show. I walk the talk. I do what I suggest. I realize that statement is contrary to what most people believe, Okay, that your home is not an investment. And that taking out a better, bigger mortgage is better. So I am stretching your comfort zone. And we're talking about the most difficult aspect of all. The equity in your home gets re- no return. And secondly, having a very large mortgage is more beneficial than paying cash for your home. So in my example, we both own identical homes. You've invested 300000 cash to buy yours. And I have $0 of my own cash and 300000 in mortgage debt. Now we've had an unusual period since 2007 when we bought those homes, and I could have found a lease option property and would have done even better financially. Actually, I thought it was such a great idea, I started a company to offer such a program. But let's say by early 2009 or late 2011, excuse me, late early 2009, by the way, that was the first bottom, or late 2011, that was the next bottom, one of us needed to sell our home we would have had difficulty selling it for more than $175,000. Yes, even though I bought a foreclosed property and got a much lower price than the original owners paid, the property dropped in value by another 45% the next two to three years. So what's your return on the $300,000 equity in your home versus my $0 of equity in my home? Well, we both lost $125,000. Yours was a cash loss. Where if I had to sell at that time, the government, in its infinite stupidity, devised rules which would allow me to walk away and leave my mortgage bank with that loss. Now, millions of people did just that. Most of them because of financial necessity, but there were thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people who, for financial reasons, decided to default on their contract with the mortgage bank. I couldn't do that. The bottom line is that each of us lost $125,000 of value regardless of how much equity we had in, in the home. Your 100% equity had the same return as my 0% equity. None. The homes went down in value independent of or regardless of our equity. What equity we have has no impact on the appreciation or loss in the property value. Okay, let's admit the Great Recession was an anomaly, and it should not occur again for a long time. But I provide you no guarantees of that. So let's now focus on the future. Five years from now, both of us um, will have homes worth more than $300,000. And the value of our homes will be the same, regardless of how much equity we have in them. So the equity will have no return. The value or price of the property just changed. So whether our homes are worth three hundred fifty or four hundred fifty thousand has nothing to do with the equity invested. It's just the change in property prices due to inflation. And whether you buy cash or I buy with a mortgage, we don't change inflation. 
Now, the 700000 of cash that I didn't spend on that million-dollar home, I invested in some in investment properties, some in private mortgage loans, some in stocks. Now, both the investment properties and private mortgage loans have provided me income in the meantime, and those stocks are back to their 2007 value. Over the next 20 years, you and I will both earn significant appreciation on our homes. But it has nothing to do with the equity invested. Now, in addition to that appreciation, I'll, I'll uh, earn a return on my investments far outperforming the cash you have tied up in your home. After you've heard the logic and reviewed the numbers, hopefully you start to see why your home is not an investment. Fortunately, our homes are appreciating assets, and that asset goes up in value. I'll go ahead and refinance, take out some more cash, and put it into real investments, since I know my home is not an investment. I'll continue to get a but my equity invested will be more negative over time. Now, for those of you still struggling with this overall concept, even though the numbers make sense, I think I can explain why it seems illogical. You're probably thinking, if putting the minimal amount of equity in my home and investing that cash in other assets builds my wealth faster than the person who is cashing the property, why is it so many homeowners lost money during the Great Recession? Ah, the answer is not in the house. The answer is in the D of wealth DNA. If you didn't listen to the show on Christmas Eve, December of 2012, I encourage you to listen to that show. The D stands for desire, determination, and discipline. You see, the majority of people are not wealthy and will never be, since they lack that D, specifically the discipline. The money most people withdrew when refinancing spent on cars, vacations, clothes, electronics, toys. They didn't invest it in income-generating assets. They didn't put it in IGAs. When people like you or I who have the discipline to use available cash to put in IGAs, our wealth grows. Others spend their money on expenses. They have more stuff in their garages, which later are available for pennies on the dollar at next garage sale. Incidentally, a number of wealth some very good items at first. Some great deals on tools I needed, one of which I needed for a project just this past weekend, so it already has paid for itself. Summary. For those of you who tuned in at the very beginning, and are still with me for the summary, I want to congratulate you. You appear to have the D in wealth DNA. You have the desire and the determination to continue to grow. The N, which stands for knowledge or knowledge, if you prefer, that you need to be wealthy. Even when an investment concept seems counterintuitive, uncomfortable, or inconsistent with the wealth files in your mind, you stayed with me to understand the logic and the analysis, and you showed a willingness to step out of your comfort zone. I certainly hope Steve and Kristen gained from this show just before buying their first home and will have more resist the well-intentioned advice they'll get from misguided, misinformed people who will never be wealthy. Tell them they should pay off that mortgage sooner. They might even point out that when they're down to 80% of the original purchase price, they won't have to pay the mortgage insurance and thus save some money. What those well-intentioned uninformed people don't understand is that it's very easy to earn a higher return on your cash 
than the three on their mortgage. Furthermore, in just a few years, there will be millions of people who regret of these historically low prices on houses and mortgage rates. Books that I have recommend, so let me repeat them if you didn't write them down earlier. Related to today's topic, uh, especially, is Missed Fortune, that's M-I-S-S-E-D, Missed Fortune by Douglas Andrew. Did I get it right this time? Yes, Douglas Andrew, not Andrew Douglas, <laughs> Douglas Andrew. But if you look up Missed Fortune, you'll find it. Especially the first half. Now, it's a very thick book. Never, never be able to read all that. But it's an easy read, lots of great examples. Now, the next one was Millionaire Next Door. That's by Thomas Stanley and William Danko. And they incidentally fit the, I personally fit the profile in that book. And I believe in these concepts even before reading it. Third was Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harv Ecker. And I am getting a clicking noise. I'm not being able to, I don't know what the heck that is. I don't know if you can hear that, people. We're getting a clicking noise on the... Uh, but uh, what was the third book? Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. That's by T. Harvecker. Great book. Fourth, Stanley. Similar, similar titles, but very different books. Millionaire Mind will cover a lot of the facts I shared with you. Now, they're all wonderful books. And all three are available as audiobooks, so you can listen while you drive that depreciating asset you call a car. I think I'll even offer you a guarantee. If you buy any of these books, read it or listen to it, whichever you choose to do. I prefer the audiobooks. And you don't learn at least one useful concept from any of those books, I'll buy them from you for the same price you paid. Now, if the authors are listening, I guess it'd be uh, unfair. I should exclude you since uh, you won't be learning too much from reading the book you Take that chance. Not as a guest and future shows. You'll have some great information here. And to me, let's just plan to meet somewhere in the future. Whether it's in Phoenix, Arizona, somewhere in Mexico, somewhere in Europe. I'd love to meet with you, find out which, why you didn't learn something by your copy, which I'll use for someone else. Having each of those offer, authors on future shows so they can explain some of these concepts far better than I could in my brief overviews. They are very smart investors. I should add one more point that I didn't cover when using my example of uh, you and I buying identical homes. You need to buy 45%. You had a problem. So when I bought my home, and my home decreased in value by 45%. I didn't have a problem. The mortgage bank did. Incidentally, despite the fact that I've made all my payments and the risk of was at the depths of the housing crisis, they don't seem willing to refinance my home, nor any of my investment property. This government-sponsored HARP 2.0, since the mortgage notes are indeed owned by... I'll leave that topic for another show on HARP 2.0. I also referenced a number of shows in our growing archive. The series we did on OPM, Other People's Money, Real Estate, and the recent Christmas Eve show on D and Wealth DNA. And if you have shows, I encourage you to take advantage of the archive, which is the upcoming
next two months, we'll be continuing our series on alternative investments. Obviously, one alternative investment is not your home. On one of those shows, we'll talk more about the recent dumb decisions made by the banksters. We plan to have Eddie Speed, the renowned expert on with the latest illogical strategy being pursued by those banksters. We'll also have experts on trading and a guest to share some insights on the education most financial advisors of investments. And Tune into the show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals. Some great ideas inspire you to be as wealthy as you want to be. And yes, occasionally the topics will conflict with your long-held beliefs. The next Wealth DNA Radio April 8th, 9 a.m. Arizona time. Same place, same time, except for our friends in Europe, where it will be. Remember, the archive of past shows and this show are available on Wealth. Do you have any comments? Uh, on today's topic, suggestions, questions, or you haven't received my emails reminding you about the show, just send an email to ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy investing, not in your home, but in real investments. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.